Welcome to episode 7 of The Writer's Room with me, novelist Charlotte Wood. In each episode of this podcast, I speak with another writer or another artist about their work, how they work and what sustains them through a creative life. Today I'm speaking with non-fiction writer Ruby Hammad about persuasive writing, cultural critique and how to weather the storms of public opinion while holding on to your writerly hat. Ruby Hamad is a journalist, author and academic, currently completing her PhD in Media Studies at the University of New South Wales. She's a former columnist at Fairfax's Daily Life, where she wrote about issues as varied as feminism, veganism and Middle East politics. She's also written for The Saturday Paper, Crikey, SBS and The New York Times. Her Guardian Australia article, headlined how white women use strategic tears to silence women of colour, became a global flashpoint for discussions of white feminism and racism and grew into her first book, White Tears, Brown Scars. It was published in 2019 by Melbourne University Press and will be released in North America and the UK later this year. I spoke with Ruby at my house in Inner Sydney So this episode's background noises include reversing garbage trucks, my three-year-old neighbour and assorted other suburban harmonies. I hope you enjoy this interview. So welcome Ruby Hamad. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. My first question to you is when did you know you wanted to be a writer? Oh, See, that, it's not that easy for me to answer because I actually, I wrote my first story, uh, I was like seven years old and uh, I didn't, you know, think that much of it, but, but, but my school, my primary school teacher, she made like a really big deal of it and she typed it up and she laminated it and said that I was, you know, it was, it was very great and so I thought, oh, maybe I can be an author. So I had this like this secret ambition, but it did drop off and so I didn't really nurture it I did a lot of reading and not so much writing as a, as a young you know adolescent and then I kind of lost it and then I did a you know, regular degree like a, a, an economics degree when traveling and I kind of rediscovered it in my late 20s so I want to say since I was really young, but not exactly because it was there and then it went. Yeah. So it was a process of rediscovering it, which is a shame because I think I missed out on, on some time when I could have really nurtured it. But Did you know that you would end up writing books, like when you rediscovered it again? Yeah. Like White Tears, Brown Scars? No. Right. Th- th- this has been a surprise for me yeah. uh, because I... I came back into writing through film school. So I went to, to, to VCA, Victorian College of the Arts, in the film school where we wrote our own scripts. And I did discover I was better at the script writing than the, than the actual filmmaking, the directing stage. And, and so and so obviously that was fiction, it was drama. I didn't, didn't do documentary. And through there, you know, while after graduating and trying to get films off the ground and coming so close so many times and it just wasn't happening, I was getting older and I'm like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be 40, I'm going to be 50 and have nothing to show for it. So uh, he's silly me thinking, well, it might be easier to go, you know, re-arrive re- your old dream of, of writing and journalism and because, sure, it might be hard to get published as a, as a writer, as a journalist, however... It's not costing you money like it has costed you with yeah. filmmaking. Uh, uh, so, and at that time, I still, you know, maybe foolishly thought that it would be easier to break into media and writing than it would be to into film. Which films just seem so hard and, and heartbreaking because it mm. came so close so many times. Anyway, so I I didn't think I would be writing things like this. It was this process of discovering these blocks that I would always come up against, and I was like because I'm a woman and you know so uh, and then slowly you, you, you start to piece it together and you you the way that people react to certain stories you write whether or not I don't think I was writing it through a racial you know I'll be just be commenting on on, on on you know political stories of the day 
the commentary and the, the pushback that I would get in the comment section, this is before social media really exploded, it would, they would always draw attention to my name and to, uh, oh, well, her name is, her name is Hammered, her last name, which of course she'll think that. So I would be writing something like criticising our the Iraq war or something, you know. So essentially implying that because of my heritage and my background from, from the Middle East, I, I couldn't actually have an objective view mm. or I couldn't have an honest view. And so I was getting pushed into noticing again that I am, you know, different. I'm doing scare quotes now. So, mm -hmm. um, and so you start, you know, there's this process of, of um, realising, okay, there's only so far I can come or I can get because whether I want it to be or not, my race is an issue. Mm. My background is an issue. My family's religion is an issue. Mm. And so that's, that's kind of how it gets... You know, I started to write more about race. So it's really strange to me because I always get, you know, part of the, the backlash I guess, oh, you make everything about race. You only <laughs> think about race. And I'm like, trust me, my whole 20s, I was thinking that I could, you know, maybe you know, obviously naively I could, I don't want to outrun it, but just thinking that I could transcend it because it wouldn't be an issue if I didn't make it an yeah. issue, you, if mm -hmm. you get what I mean. But it was. They just, it's just, uh, they wanted to be, when I say they, you know, <laughs> people that, that, that backlash, whoever, that they want it to be a quiet issue. Like, mm. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't voice it. It just kind of happens quietly. Uh, and then even just writing this book, I mean, I, even after I wrote that article that the book is based on, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't see a book there. I, I wrote the article and at that point I was actually pulling back from the media because I'd started my PhD and... I, I just it was just the, the response that I had where I literally had dozens of women asking me to keep going and yeah, to actually right. make it a book. So I'm going to come to that yeah. in a second, the sure. story of the article and then the mm -hmm. book, because I yep. think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. But just before we get to that, I read recently that one of your favourite writers is Thomas Hardy, mm -hmm. which might surprise people who are yeah. familiar with your work. Why does Thomas Hardy appeal to you in particular? He... Wrote, I mean, the other thing is I discovered him in my early 20s. Mm -hmm. So um, he wrote about, well, like the, 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 the issues of his day, which actually still the issues of our day, which is things like sexism, moralism, and, and, and how hard society comes down on people who are different and people who, want, who, who don't want to live according to you know, the rules and, uh, of, of society. So, you know, his, his books in particular, Judy Obscure and Tess of the D'Urbervilles. So, uh, and so it was, it was that two-pronged thing, A, of he, the, the way in which he, his works were a critique of, um, you know, the church and of society and Victorian morals. And he's, you know, kind of almost like fighting for the underdog. And also, uh, the, the, I think a lot of what appeals to me is the fact that the, the backlash that he also received mm. um, is is quite telling. Um, that you know, we, we still you know, it's more than a hundred years ago, as a society, still have a major problem when people just try to hold up a mirror or, or a critique um, of. Not just certain pockets of society, but the whole structure of it, mm -hmm. the whole system. And I think what what Thomas Hardy does in some of his work is to show that there's something quite rotten throughout all of, mm. the, you know, the classism, the sexism, and oh, yeah. fascinating. Thank yeah. you. I'm going to get on to white tears, brown scars now. But I, I've often thought that as a writer, when you, one is writing a book, there are often one or two sort of touchstone books that mm -hmm. are kind of um, uh, guides for you or you know companions for you as you write yours. And I've heard you say that Edward Said and Kyla mm -hmm. Schuller, um, th there are two books of theirs that really um, kind of sound like they were touchstones for you in mm -hmm. writing White Tears. What do they bring to your writing intellectually and psychologically? And also, how did they sort of give you 
courage to <laughs> to keep writing into this you know territory that has got you a lot of um, backlash. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll start with Saeed because you know his his book in particular, Orientalism, has been so phenomenally influential um, in. A lot of fields, and and uh, particularly the field. Well, I mean, there was the what spurred the uh, post-colonial studies, uh, but yeah, I won't go go into that. But uh, he, what uh, Orientalism did is, it's it's essentially it's a critique of how the West represents the Orient, and he focuses on you know the the, the Arab speaking and and the Muslim world or uh, regions where where Arabs and uh, Islam is dominant. And so he, he's critiquing that the way in which they're represented is not necessarily the way in which they are, but it's the, it, tells, it tells you more about the West than it tells you about the, the Orient. And so I drew on a lot of that because, I mean, my book, the entire first half of it is about how West, the Western society or white society has represented non-white women. So in that respect, it borrows a lot from from uh, Saeed, and and that it's a critique. I'm not attempting to say this is this is exactly what black women are like, and what Arab women are like, and what Indigenous women are like. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, this is how they are represented. Mm-hmm. And then in the second half, um, I then turn it around to to do my own study of of uh, whiteness and white womanhood in particular so not so much white women but white womanhood and then how white women do have that option to either play into that or not or maybe often they don't realize because Mm -hmm. it's just not spoken about you know Um, well it's starting to be now but so and that's where Kyla Shuler's um, work in particular comes in because she deconstructs white womanhood as and what's as the a racialized co- that... uh, category, uh, her book is called "The Biopolitics of Feeling." Mm. So it is a very uh, the subtitle is race. What is it? Race, sex, and and no race and sex or race and gender in the nineteenth century. So she's talking about scientific racism and how it constructed womanhood as a racialized category. So and not only that, but sex difference. So this idea of this fully evolved or the most highly evolved race in the white race a lot of it was based on these clearly differentiated binary categories of male and female which wasn't just about the the physical biology but that this they supposedly had you know fully differentiated brains and dispositions which all the other races didn't have therefore that's how it was all justified so uh, and obviously, there's a lot more books that I that I do mm. reference in there. Mm. But in terms of the the the, the foundations and, and the big picture of what I'm trying to do in the book, yeah, they, those were the two most influential. Mm. It sounds, sounds particularly. It is. It's it's beautifully written as well. It is is highly academic, and I'll and I'll be honest. I, I there were some sections I had to read three times because I did want to make this book as. It, my book as accessible oh, as possible good, because I want to talk about yeah. that about that yeah. line that you walk between yeah. the scholarly but I'll come to that in a sec sure. so let's just talk about the genesis of the book mm. which began an essay you wrote for the Guardian um, this question is about how you know a topic has enough kind of heft mm. for an article or indeed a book um, so what gave rise to you writing that essay um, for the Guardian, and I think what was it called? And what was the headline in the Guardian? So the headline is oh. how white women use strategic tears to silence women of color. Yeah. So it's interesting because if I if I'd done the, t- the the headline myself, I wouldn't have focused on the tears aspect. I obviously you know I did mention that, and I quoted other women that have said that, but I was I was focusing more on the, this dynamic of. Um, and I'm terrible with titles. I either come to me right away or they never come, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I couldn't come up with one for that. So I left it to them. And, and and so I was focusing on this dynamic of when we, we being women of colour, um, challenge or disagree with, with uh, white women, often we're met with defensiveness and then accusations 
um, which sort of turned this, the table back around to make us make it seem like well, anything we're saying is aggressive, even if, and not, if, not even necessarily that we as in women are being victimised, but it could just be disagreement. Yeah. But it's, it's often taken in, in the most, as if we're acting in bad faith. And um, that the white women sort of, um, whether they're conscious of it or not, yes, yes. Um, this is what, what be, become yeah. kind of emotional yeah. and upset, yeah. and then the the woman of colour ends up apologising and exactly, and, and the the person who has been hurt in inverted commas is the white woman. So the original issue is never exactly the original issue is, is is forgotten. And so what I want, want what I wanted to add was it's not always necessarily that the white woman is acting. Um, as if she's been hurt or she's crying. It, it could, it could just, it could sometimes just be anger or withdrawal. So it's not always. So that's why I probably wouldn't have put this. But that's you know, just this the bane of the freelancers. Yeah, life, right? and it's just you become white tears has kind of just become a shorthand for yeah all of all of these uh, sort of accompanying Behaving. or additional responses and, and emotions. Um, it's not always necessarily you know crying emotional. Uh, so. You know, that happened because um, I was experiencing it and, and, and at that point, I, and for me, I think what really made me hit on it was because I was experiencing it in, in areas I wasn't expecting it. It was with feminist women and colleagues and, and people that I'd known for a really long time and that I kind of thought were on the same page. So, you know, and because and, it happened in quite quick succession at one point where I was like, okay, this isn't like the other times where you could say it was you or, or etc. This is every time I try to talk about this or every time I, I end up either apologising or I'm comforting someone when I'm the person who's been wrong, then, you know, start to think, have I been wrong? Maybe I am the problem. Like, you know, and obviously I spoke to, spoken to a lot of women of colour and they've all said the same thing where they just start to think, oh, it must be me. Mm. Um, and, and I do want to say, I want to get into this, you know, I don't want to imply that we're never wrong. That's not, yeah, you know, no, I, that is sometimes a response that you get. Like, well, what are you saying? Well, yeah, every yeah, time a yeah. white woman cries, she's manipulating and, and, you know, brown and black women can never be wrong or aggressive. Not, not at all. I'm talking, talking about the fact. As, as yeah. given, but well, I, I understand hope so, why. but yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, because it happened in such quick succession and in cases where it's like, God, all I'm you know, all I was saying was I disagree. Why, why did you get so upset? Like, I don't understand. And, and you know, and then in, in some cases, and this is work-related, so I really can't go into detail, mm. I did get hit with actual, oh, it's so, why are you doing this and nothing's good enough for you? And I was like, you're, you're my boss. Like, you're an editor. Like, you're making a lot of money. I'm a freelancer. How can you possibly be saying that I'm making your life difficult i'm the one who can lose my entire platform and income mm. if you know if this conflict isn't resolved uh so with all that happening you know in a personal capacity and a professional and online i was like this there's some sort of pattern and as it just happened you know what i mean you're, you're, i guess your eyes are open and 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 so i did see that um you know black women on on twitter were, were talking about instances where where you know they'd have this experience at work and i'd be like okay like this is black women in america like is can this be the same thing you know and um so i shared on twitter and and on my, on my facebook page i should say my public facebook page on my shared this twitter thread and i shared an article which i would then reference in the essay lovey by lovey J. Mm. um it's like you know brown and black women in australia like has this happened to you here yeah, the response I got was so overwhelming. I was like, right, this is yeah. this is what I'm experiencing. It is related to what these black women in America and Canada are talking about. So this is a societal issue. Mm. That's when I realised that um, it was worth an essay. And, yeah. So you wrote the essay, you sent it to The Guardian. They sat on it for two... <laughs> the thing with the essay is I knew that it was... I don't want to, uh, first of all, I just want to, sorry, no, I talk a lot, but I want to clear out. The first thing is I don't, I'm not implying that I'm the first person to write about this, but I, in Australia, in the sense of writing about it in a mainstream capacity, it, it, it was quite unusual mm. then. Um, even in non-Australia, writing about it in a mainstream paper like The Guardian um, was very unusual. 
and uh, and then you know you have that in particular in Australia where we are behind um, uh, other other countries in, in 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 how much we're willing to talk about things, especially um, because I was saying that this is happening in amongst feminists as well, and then of course I do reference. Um, Ali Modern Robinson and, and her book, and so her book is was quite was a a um, you know it's a critique of Australian feminism and how it and, and how it relates. And this book is talking yeah. up to the white woman. Yeah, talking up to the white woman. So and I, and so I wanted to expand beyond that. So and and turn and it wasn't my book's not just a critique of white feminism. It's a critique of uh, or it's it's a study of the conceptualization of white womanhood. In Western society. Um, anyway, but now I'm, I'm jumping ahead. So, yeah, what I want to go back to the essay is I, I pitched it to the editor in person because I knew that it would just be like if I pitched this, oh, I want to do this story about how every time, or a lot of the times, I shouldn't say every time, a lot of the times when women of colour have a disagreement with a white woman, even if she's a white feminist, even if she's a friend, uh, they get victimized, you know. So I knew that it wasn't. It's not the kind of thing that you know. It's so I, I pitched it in person, and 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 um, she said yes, and then I sent it, and they sat on it for two weeks. So I just thought, oh my god, they think I'm horrible. What have I done? Because you know, white women's tears was not a household term then. Like no. it's it's a lot more common now, and it just wasn't. And and I almost wrote in. I said, you know what? Let's just withdraw it. Forget that I ever wrote it. But you know, eventually they they, they did publish it and. Yeah, that's what happened, and I I knew it would be, like I knew I was going to get backlash, but I did think the backlash would be confined to Australia, and it would be confined mostly to progressive or feminist circles. I just didn't think it would, because that's who I was writing it for. I was I was trying to say to to progressives, all these things that you say about you know it's not just them, you do it to us yeah. too. You know? um, but because it's the Guardian and they the international editors picked it up as well, it just kind of went. Um, viral and a lot of the response particularly from overseas was um, you know from from non-white people women in particular was like never thought I'd see this in something like The Guardian so it was a well it was a phenomenon they're well aware of uh, um, but it just hadn't to that point really broken through into the mainstream yeah we hadn't been able to push it through and 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 so you you first got a lot of yeah, the backlash. Hate was, response, yes. basically. Which and you almost emailed the editor to ask them to take it. I down. did email. Um oh, that's right. but they did it. Well, because I then emailed before they saw it to change and but they also said they wouldn't yeah. do it anyway, so it's just as well. But, but so I did walk it back. I was terrible because at that point I was like, Okay, I'm I'm yeah, I've seen what's happened to other white women of colour and other backlash I've gotten, but this one seemed bigger. Mm. Um, and it's frightening. It's frightening because it's just like okay, anything I say or do, um, is this is gonna follow me. Um, people are, are not, you know, they're not taking it in the spirit in which it's written. They're probably not even reading it really, mm. Mm. Um, and they're just gonna turn it into whatever they want to turn it into. So and you'll it was never quite terrifying. It. Yeah, and I'll never escape it. That was that, and um, but obviously, then I also realized pretty quickly that taken down is worse because it's it's an admission um and it's and and one other thing that with, with women of color and people of color in general apologizing doesn't make things go away with us it all it does for a lot of people is confirm their already bad opinion of us so it's not like we can wipe the slate clean um and and at the end of the day, I still stood by it. It was it was yes. the reaction, and but fortunately, uh, because it did go overseas, there, there was such a massive outpouring of support that it kind of yeah, it was it helped me to cope with the backlash, and it kind of just rounded out because you know it's isolating someone is kind of the best way to to to, to you know to victimize a target, but as soon as if people are going to come, you know, rally around and defend that person, it's a lot harder to, and so that that support did come, fortunately. Mm. And that that is really phenomenal that you got that support. Um, I'm going to come back to mm. something a bit later that you you said when you when you decided, of course, I stand by it and I won't have it taken down. You referred to your 
natural stubbornness and self-belief, yes. <laughs> uh, which I'm very keen to hear more about. But um, I don't want to, I don't want to go too much into the content of, yes. of sure. White Tears, Brown Scars because this this podcast is about process and. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you've been asked much about no, how you write. Yeah. It's, it's always what you write. But, of course, all I want to say really about the book is how powerful and intelligent and measured and convincing it is. And I recommend that everybody read it. Thank you so, so much. So once you decided, with a lot of encouragement from other people, to turn it into a book, what were your greatest challenges then going from an essay to a book? What, you know... Not just the intellectual challenges, but the kind of writerly ones about language and structure and that sort of stuff and argument. How did you, did you plan it first? Did you just start writing? How did you take, I guess, what are the steps you went through to go from the essay to the book? Um, so the first thing I did was a Google, how do you write a book proposal? Because um, I didn't know. Yes, I've done um, that myself. Yeah, and so that helped because you have to um, have an outline and, and, and a chapter outline. And so uh, what I did was I went back to the essay uh, and I read through it and I, and I highlight, I said, Imagine that you're you didn't write this. If you had to highlight, what are the what is the key points? What is this? Uh, and what I the first um, the first thing that I, that I, I highlighted was where um, I can't remember it exactly, but it's essentially a line where I talk uh, about how women of color are easily stereotyped. So I thought, okay, so what this is. What this is, is a, is you're looking at how we've been represented. What are the ways in which women of colour have been represented, which then allows for this dynamic um, when, mm. when there's a conflict. So that's when I knew, okay, so this is it's going to be a book about representation um, and not, re- you know, representation in the sense of um, pow- how power represents those without power. Um, and that's, what, of course, where Edward Said comes in. Mm. Um, and so then I, uh, I, I knew, okay, well, then if, you, if you're going to do that, then you have to talk about the various um, ways in which, how, you know, how does race play into it? Because even though there are similarities between you know, how Indigenous women are represented and how Arab women, it's obviously not the same. So what are the similarities? What are the differences? And so that's when I looked at it. Well, what are the stereotypes? What what comes? What do you think? So you know, angry black woman comes comes um, quickly, and then from that, angry brown woman. And I thought, well, how are Asian women stereotyped? Oh, okay, you've got the dragon lady, you've got the china doll, then you know. So it all came yeah. from that. Um, and so you went really to history. Yes, first. I always knew that because um, even in my most of my essays, my my um, columns that I would write, there was there would always be. A, I, I would try to put in. Okay, what's the historical precedent? Um, so that that's maybe that's an instinctual thing. I've always um, recognised that history isn't just something that's happened before. <laughs> we we are the outcome of it. We're still living it. And I think you look at sort of at, at literature yeah. in history yes. as well as you know, yes. historical events and so yeah. forth. So you you came up with all these you know the Jezebel you mm. say the China doll, um, and then all the others um, going forward. And so I think you said before there are kind of two halves mm. to the book. So the first one, am I right in saying that's the kind of historical context that gave gave rise to what's happening yeah. now? Yeah. So the first half is. is the historical context and also the first half is very much focused on how um, women have been represented and, um, you know, the w- women of colour, uh, which and then I break down into their ethnic and, and racial groups and also how white women have been represented through because, again, you know, white women are still a racialized category even though... We often, and this is what um, Aileen Morden Robertson's mm. work is so great at pointing out, is that we, white uh, feminists, regard themselves as gendered bodies, but they are also racialized, and that, and until you 
until you marry that, then you're not, you, you can't really, um, under, you know, you can't really deconstruct, you can't get at yeah. what's happening. The race is only something that isn't white. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so then I wanted to take that further because, you know, uh, um, in the sense of I wanted to also do a study of white womanhood, not just point out that uh, white uh, feminists aren't recognising their, their race, but to actually turn it around a little bit because we're always been spoken about you know particularly and you know, that's what Edward say points out in orientalism hundreds of years like built before colonialism um though europe was writing about the arab the arab world quote unquote the orient so i know that i'm in a position where a lot of people from my part of the world my family side of the world haven't been in where they actually had an opportunity to write back and say well, I'm going to write about you. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that that's yeah. There's that. So the first half is of the historical context of how uh, women of colour being represented. The second half was is about the consequences of it. How we root, how we, um, how it impacts us today, uh, all of us, not just women of colour, and and also it's a study of white womanhood. Mm. So h- how I divide it was I call the first half the setup. So this is how colonialism set it all up. The second half, I say, the payoff. So this is how it's paid off for colonialism and how we're now still trapped in that system that was set up in that first half. And this is why we, not only women, uh, like women of colour, can't escape our race and the way that um, the racism we are subjected to is gendered, but also white women... um, are not going to also like the, uh, escape the sexism and escape their gendering because, you know, again, as Kyla Schiller pointed out, their, their gendering, the way that they've been gendered and um, subordinated to, to white men is also a part of the process of racialization. Mm-hmm. So it, it, in essence, sexism is built in to the system which is not just patriarchy it's Mm. also racism Mm. so um you can't have um you know any concept of of liberation if you're only looking at gender Mm. why are scholarly sources so important to you to um you know to your work you're always um referencing Mm -hmm. other writers um and going to a sort of you know you're not just looking around your own world but you're drawing on mm-hmm. these really substantial works by other people what 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 does that do for your work well okay well a they've they've you know they've done a lot of the groundwork so um there's no need to sort of reinvent the wheel you know i'm trying to build on what others have have said and it's I you know I always like to give credit where it's due and uh, acknowledge I you know no one just comes up with anything mm. uh, and also I think it's it's you know their you know, scholarly work is, is systematic so they've sat down they've they've got into the history and they've looked at the the and analysed the you know the the archives and the records and so and then that's what they've given us um to draw on so and what i like to do is to to bridge that gap between because there is a gap and i Mm. and i you know the in the sense that um you know a lot of the issues that i talk about in my book have been been spoken about for decades and that and it's but but they've been uh, mostly spoken about in a academic context and very often it just doesn't Mm. doesn't reach beyond that Mm. and i think part of that is um it's kind of ignored in the mainstream uh, by media and uh, but and uh, an activist like as in uh, some feminist activists. But also, it's it is an issue of, of accessibility in language. So, I want to make um, these concepts and these and these arguments that have been made in 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 the academy uh, available to to you know, people that are not from the academy yeah. and, and that would otherwise um, struggle to read and, and understand 
because uh, you know academic writing is basically code like you have to understand yeah. the code um, well that's uh, that's what I was about to get to which is mm. it seems to me that you, you write out of academia but also away from it I mm. mean you sort of as you say bridge the gap between academia and a general audience so mm -hmm. that you know a book club will pick up your books but yeah. they're not going to pick up Kyla Schuller's yeah. book right yeah um, so how important is that to you, that sort of line that you're walking between scholarly and popular non-fiction? Yeah, I mean, well, very, obviously, because I've, you know, I, I worked um, at making the book that way, it's exactly to place it between. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to recognise the intelligence of your audience while also understanding that some, they just... I mean, don't have that academic background or even maybe even a desire to, that doesn't mean that they're not able to engage with these concepts. Mm. Um, and also, you know, I wanted it to be read by as many people as possible. So writing it in a more uh, accessible style is, it was, was paramount um, without losing the rigour yes. of, of academia uh, and so that it's not just... This is what I think. You yeah, know, well, actually, it is what I think, but I also try to ground that in something else. This thinking, is why I think this. Yeah, I was thinking about your work in the context of um, my friend, the writer Lucinda Hodforth, has a book about speech writing called Leading Lines, and she talks about Plato's four rhetorical strategies mm. of. Oops, my mistake. It wasn't Plato. It was Aristotle. Sorry, Lucinda. Sorry, Aristotle, for rhetorical strategies mm. of ethos, meaning integrity, authority, logos, logic, pathos, appealing to the emotions, and kairos, timing. Mm. And I wondered what you think of those as kind of guiding principles for persuasive writing because, you know, timing with this book, it's about to be published in the States, mm -hmm. right? It, the timing is just <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, the timing is... Yeah. So, anyway, what do you think about those four kind of... I mean, I, I wasn't um, conscious of that as I was writing, but it certainly applies. I think it's part of... I think some of it is, for some of us, is probably instinctual, but yeah. it, it, it certainly... Because um, you really do yeah. hit all of those notes. And oh, I think the, you know, the scholarly stuff is that yeah. ethos, yeah. Um, authority... Your personal um, experiences brings the the emotional impact of mm. this stuff on women to life, um, and the logic obviously is all there as well. And the, the, as I said, the timing. So um, it just seemed to fit so perfectly. Yeah. I wanted to <laughs> I wanted you. to mention it. Um, Thank you. What about well, what about popular culture then? Mm. Because you find a lot of clues and sort of examples of cultural behaviour in popular culture in a way that someone like me, you know, I, I don't really pay attention mm. to Disney this or, um, you know, who's in Doctor Who or whatever. I'm just not a very popular culture <laughs> person. But why is it important to pay attention to it? Because it's so pervasive um, we, you know, we can choose to ignore it and remove ourselves from it, but that doesn't that doesn't change the impact that it has mm -hmm. out there on, on others. And and also because, you know, looking back into sort of their history and and popular culture has always been a way in which um, the dominant the culture has asserted itself and asserted its its um well its, its dominance and and so looking you know through literature and art and and then you know in the modern context we can add you know reality tv and all sorts of, of um you know i've got a quote in there from Stuart hall um who's who was a late um academic and a marxist and, and critical race theorist and he has a great quote where he says that you know he pays attention to popular culture because this is a site of you know, of hegemony and where culture is is contested. Um, it's where it's asserted and it's where it's resisted. Mm. And then he adds, uh, 
you know, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't really care about it at all. And, and so that to me is, um, which is not just that I never watch popular culture, I do engage in it, but the reason in which I don't, you know, I don't think um, talking or analysing or including popular culture in analysis in any way takes away from the um, sort of its, its, uh, its intellectual um, uh, worth or weight. Yeah. It's, it's about, it's recognising that it, it, it has a massive reach and, and it's where representations yeah, of culture absolutely. take place. Absolutely. And, um, you know, one, I, I was asked that question, or some question in a writers' festival about popular culture, and I answered, I, I said, a lot of us, a lot of people uh, assume that mice like to eat cheese, right? So if you put cheese on the mouse trap, um, and then you, you read and you discover them. they don't really actually like it very much. So where do we get this idea? Well, it's, you know, those old cartoons. And yeah. you, know, you realise, okay, they would have had a reason for doing the cheese because we know that cheese is pungent. Whereas if you put a piece of bread on a mousetrap, how they get, you know, that, 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 <laughs> yeah, right. that, that image of the, 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 the flavour like, floating down the, the whole way to the mouse's nostrils is not going to quite have yeah, an impact. Right. So they obviously needed something that's pungent. Um, but see, this is this is a way in which something that happens in a pop in popular culture can completely permeate our way of thinking um, and, and actually create reality. And it creates because, mm. and we assume um, it's the first thing that people think. I oh, put a bit of cheese on, but they don't, don't particularly like that. They you know yeah, what they like. Yeah, so yeah, I didn't think of it when in the book. I could have, but um, but yeah. So that and and again. Going back to why I use academics, because of, you know, a lot of studies have been done in it. The way in which people, you know, uh, people, um, they, we get our ideas about other people, in particular um, uh, people that we don't have a lot of uh, interaction with, from what we see. Uh, and so if uh, particular people are always being represented in a certain way, then that becomes part of our mm. reality. Mm. Well, moving on from popular culture to a kind of even more um, tricky area, social media. Mm. Now, it's kind of central to your work in lots of ways um, because it's often where you have seen phenomenon play out and so on. And yet I know you, you have a very complicated relationship with it. What's your relationship with social media now? In, you know, how much does it help your writing or hinder it? Oh, God, that's, that's hard to say now. Well, because I'm not on it so much. <laughs> okay, I've, I've, you know, taken down uh, my Twitter account, which happened after that book was released here in Australia. Um, and why did you leave Twitter? Oh, the, the harassment, the bullying. I was getting too much. Um, and I will say it wasn't from the right wing. Mm. So that, if you want a, an indication of, of um, how pervasive it can be uh, in terms of, of the targeting women of colour that are saying things that some people don't want to hear. Um, Right-wing bullying was a lot easier for me to handle than, than coming from progressives and the left. Um, but so, look, it's still important uh, and I still look at it to see what's happening um, because it's all media is on there and I, I, but I don't like to you can't just base everything just on what's happening online you go mm. you have to kind of see is this how is this playing out in the real world yeah because um, if there's yeah, no if there's no if there isn't a connection then it's purely an online I think sense. for me that I, I was on Twitter for nine years and I left it yeah you know, a few years ago and one of the things it became really clear when I left it, and I loved it for ages. Mm, same. Um, was how when you're not on it, you realise that actually hardly anybody is on it, mm, you know. Mm. But, and I think I looked up the stats on Twitter in Australia. It was something like 13% or something of yeah. Australians are using Twitter. But when you're on Twitter, you feel like, like the whole world feels, is there. Yeah. So you feel that it's representative when it's really... Yeah. Not anyway. There's lots of the problem there. However, is because a lot of journalists are on it, or all mm. journalists, then they take that and they put it in the media. So social media becomes media. Yeah. That is why, in my mind, Twitter can't be um, 
kind of sort of ignored or overlooked in the same way that things like Reddit or 4chan, even though they have massive um, audience, um, you know, uh, interaction there, um, they're they're not the we don't we just don't see um, those sorts those of websites. Those things are not embedded influence. in news stories. Yeah, in the way exactly. That... Whereas Twitter still is, mm-hmm. and so as long as that is happening. Then I don't. I don't think we can say, well, it's only Twitter. Yeah. That's that to me is is. Um, but I like um, your reasoning that it's got to be happening elsewhere as well for it to be yeah a real thing. Yeah, yeah, it does have to be. Yeah. So, I don't want to spend too much time mm. on this, but you know, you have had absolutely horrific things said to you online about you. You know, awful things that I won't even repeat. Mm. But. What strategies do you have for yourself as a writer, you know, and what would you recommend to other writers about how to deal with that stuff, um, how to protect yourself from it, how do you not internalise it and get damaged by it? Yeah, I'm not the best person on that. I'll be honest, it's, I, find, I still struggle with it. It's, it's hard when, when you're like, that's not me. And I get frustrated because it's like just... Can you not engage? Like, if you have a problem with what I've said, just engage with what I've actually said. Why are you either making things up about what I've supposedly said or written or else ignoring what I've said altogether and then just, you know, fabricating things? Um, and it's hard because, uh, you know, you, you, that, that drive to defend yourself can be so strong because it's like, it's you know someone puts something down and it's on the internet and it's there and it's just like, ah, if I don't challenge this, you know, it's just there. It's un, um, you know, so, so it's, it's a hard thing um, so to realise. So do you realize challenge it or do you I, I have it in the past. Now I, I don't. That's part of the reason why I had to remove myself from Twitter because I did realise every time I tried to challenge, it really, it's a trap. It's bait. Like they don't themselves believe it, but... The, the game is, and this is where, where it goes beyond Twitter because this is the games that people play. Um, people sort of play games with you and they manipulate. And, and so they want all they're after is a reaction and then after that anything you say is going to be twisted and then eventually the game is, the point is to get you upset enough to say something that you snap mm. and they're like, ha-ha, see? Mm. And that's exactly how it's played out. And it happened after the, so I, you know, I fell for these, these traps <laughs> even after writing something like that. Um, because it's hard to separate yourself from it. And it's just like you, you want to say, that's not me. That's yeah. not me. Um, but they don't I really I think in care. the book you, um, you cite Toni Morrison's um, mm. statement about distraction, that a lot of the yeah. – I can't remember the exact quote, but a lot of the, the, the point of this sort of stuff is to distract you yeah. from the real stuff. Yeah. And it works. And it works. It, well, absolutely, because when, you know, a lot of these – sort of, I don't know what you want to call it, flame or whatever, these, these attacks on Twitter would happen, I would lose days, if not weeks, where I would just barely function. Like, that's how badly it affected me. Um, some people thrive, some people get their energy, it seems, from these sorts of conflicts, mm. and I don't. Like, it, it definitely takes, it takes away from my work, it takes away from my happiness, my self-esteem, my, you know, and it takes away from my, my real life relationships. So it wasn't working mm. uh, for me. And it's a shame because there were, once upon a time, Twitter was a lot of fun. And, and like a lot of writers, I joined it as a way to interact, but to promote, you know, mm. but it just became, it's become something completely different mm. now. Speaking of baiting, mm. um, you also write in White Tears, Brown Scars, a really interesting, you know, not a long passage, but about the danger for a writer who's addressing issues of race in being drawn into writing clickbait for, mm. you know, mainstream publications, uh, becoming a sort of provocateur for hire and in a way that can damage you but not, there's no skin off the publication's nose to have you, you know, pilloried and whatever. So again, what would your advice be? I mean, you you made some you know um, very compassionate um, observations about things you've seen in the media and wish that somebody was taking care of those writers, you mm. know, of writing stuff that you think mm, it's too sketchy. Or what would you advise other writers who wanted to sort of work in this area um, about 
getting good relationships with editors and and finding ones that you can trust to mm. to protect you. Yeah, I mean, that's hard to do now because of the nature of that 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 industry now because of the impact that the internet has had and social media has had where everything moves so fast and there are a lot more websites now than there was when I started so there's a lot more competition and there's that they want this quickly they want it now and so they're not necessarily publishing um, the writers real sort of because it takes time to to you know there's that initial, okay, well, this is what I think, but, you know, it takes time to even really, for me anyway, I would assume other writers are similar, to even really understand what you're trying to say. And sometimes, you know, there's, there's been things that I've written where I wouldn't want the first draft published mm. because it's, it's, it hasn't really been thought out. And, and so it's, it's a hard... It's so, so hard to give that advice now because you can say... You, you should, you know, ask for more time, but that time isn't always available. They're not willing to give it to you. And because it's very rare for a, a writer who writes, who isn't a staff writer, which most of us are now writing in this sort of field, this area, um, to have um, a regular gig. So you're trying to put work wherever you, you can fit it. So you may not even be able to like have the time to establish a strong relationship with an editor, and it's and it's such an unforgiving yeah. <laughs> environment now. Like you know, you can say one thing that might be construed or is able to be interpreted maybe in a not the way you intended, and hell will break loose. And I don't, I, my honest like I've not said this before. I I wouldn't start out now. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't. There's just there's a no way. So I, when I see young people and they're or or, or even writers that are starting now, uh, you know, no, it doesn't matter the age. I, I'm just like, wow, I wouldn't. Um, it wasn't like this. So it's not to say we didn't get backlash, of course, but this, you know, when I started, it was it was still confined to the comment section, which you, yeah. you could easily you could not read. Yeah, and that's yeah. why we don't read the comments. But now it's like. You know, if someone tags you on Twitter, that's mm. another reason I couldn't handle it because mm. whether you like it or not, that's it. You're tagged. Sure, you can block them, but then another. And so it's but sometimes, you see and it. this happens on Facebook too. Sometimes people tag you to say, "I love this article by Ruby," and then you get the yes, you know, abusive I, stuff. So, in yeah, there. like yeah, and and so you can't you can't, you can't really avoid it, and um. So, but I, you know, but you must I don't have an totally defeat, defeatist. But yeah, I wouldn't start out now. Um, but you must have an antenna for yourself now. If someone wants you to mm. write something, and you think, uh -uh. oh yeah. For me, I'm a lot better about saying no. Look, I don't write much in the media anymore. Very mm. rarely, um, and and part that's partly because I'm focusing or trying to focus on my PhD, um, and it's partly because of all these issues. It's it's too. Um, it's just too, it's too fraught and, and it's often not worth it. And it's So when you were invite, asked to write for the New York Times about mm. the Amy Cooper, you know, that horrific uh, footage of the woman in Central Park calling the police on a black yeah. man who had perfectly politely asked her to restrain her dog. Um, and they, so the New York Times asked you to write that piece. Yeah, because they have, have a relationship with a publisher and so they, yeah, they communicated with the publisher. And so, I mean, I said, yeah, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Why? Well, partly because, um, you know, people were asking me to yeah. to it rather than, oh, I'm going to pitch this story because I would not have, I had no intention of writing about it and I would not have um, particularly... To Americans, you yeah. know, I've been, um, but that I you know I I and it, I, I agreed, and also because it was, um, you know, their reasoning was this is because my first response was, am I the best person? Like, is this something that you know, and particularly Americans and Black Americans should be writing about? And the the response was, 
um, these does this what the way in which you analyze it you talk, it fits into what your book's yeah. about and what your work is about and you can focus on the specifics of the interaction and then you know what your work does is widen and, it to show yeah. how it affects others and and and, and what, what what the bigger context is and i guess you had already done the thinking and the work well exactly you, it was it and was and i have quite, to say when i saw yeah. that footage your book was the first thing i thought of yeah well it was such this a is again example why of the I, yeah damsel, why i was asked to, to um yeah because uh, I, and a lot of people did sort of say that to me yeah. that's the first thing hence i guess why they thought i would be um you know, a, a good person. And so not the only, because they did have others writing about, yeah. about that. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I was taken aback because I was like, um, should I? And then I, yeah, you know, uh, and then there's also the logistical side of it. Like it's part of your contract is you, <laughs> you have to write, um, you have to write articles to help promote mm. blog or to help. Put, oh, that's a whole other mm. thing, isn't it, that we could go down, but we don't have time. Okay, I want to I into that, maybe leave that out. <laughs> No, but it's interesting though because it is something. I mean, even fiction writers have yeah, to do that you now. Have to, yeah. um, I guess this might be a kind of heading to the end of the interview, and it's a sort of maybe slightly complex question, but it's about language. So you're writing about fairly highly charged topics where language is really the precision of language is really important, and I've. I might be wrong about this and I'd love to hear your thoughts on if so, but sometimes it seems to me that it's become very easy for people to just grab hold of terms like white fragility or Karen's or wokeness mm. or whatever to kind of really quickly take those up and use them in a way that kind of A, decontextualizes them, B, deadens the original meaning in mm. some way and allows people to actually stop thinking. And I feel like that, for example, white people can suddenly jump on this language of resistance, bandy these terms about to call each other out and kind of perform as sort of mm. accountabilities. And it's really on social media where it happens, but then not actually feel they have to do anything to actually make change. So I guess my questions are, Am I overstating this? Is it a thing more of behaviour than language or how are they related? And third, how do you then in your writing keep your language fresh and original and meaningful so that it can't be just mm. grabbed hold of in this way and then dropped in a way yeah. that lets, you know, lets the problem remain? It's a long question, sorry. Yeah, no, that's... it's. Really, really good question because it is something I think about a lot. Um, so I don't know that the problem is with language itself. It's how it's the way in which language is used and it becomes um, a tool. Um, but I, yeah, I do think when we have an easy um, kind of like you know catchphrase or a, or a really easy you like damselism, I'm seeing used now. You know. And yeah. Look, I did say to you know this was a while ago. I said to me that yeah, I'm aware of how um, language is and terms are appropriated to, you know, when they're a challenge to the status quo to then become a part of the status quo. Um, and I think it's not going to be long before it happens to white tears. We know that. Um, but you know, and so it's what I that's always going to happen, yeah. right? Um, and. I could see it happening with Karen, and which is not something I use. Like I've used no. it jokingly. Um, I did think about when I was doing the edit for the US version because since then it's kind of grown. And I was like, no, I don't. I don't even like. I I, I think that's gonna peak and wane because exactly what you said. Like it's been used. I see white women calling women of color Karen now. Like it just <laughs> makes no sense. And the other thing is, it was really. It was a. It was a slang term and which I did think in originated with with, with, with African American women. And it was it was more it was more of to denote an annoying, you know, yeah. a white woman who's annoying them. You know, it's just like, you know, okay Karen, what are you you know? So I know there's there's disputes about where it originated, but in the sense in the way in which we use it, or is in the way people of colour use it. Um, now it's just become 
any, you know, anytime a white woman does anything, oh, it's a Karen. It's kind of like, it does, it kind of, as you said, it deadens the meaning uh, and it, it allows for its appropriation and it allows for the, um, the ridicule of all of the discourse, if that mm. makes sense, you know, so. And you've talked about woke yeah, being yeah. used in that way. Yeah. Uh, and again, I mean, that's a, that's a term I've never used because that's definitely a term that's originated with, with, with African-Americans and, and and it did denote, like, it, it was it was uh, not just a reference to I'm, I've awakened to racism, but it was meant to be the whole interplay of, of how capitalism and racism sort of work together. So, and now it's just can't, it's now it's just used to... It's to to mock anyone who talks about racism. Mm. Uh, so again, it's the mockery of woke, the term and wokeness that has untethered it from sort of a material analysis of economics and class. It, it wasn't the people that came up with it. Mm. Um, and so this happens, it, it's happened with identity politics. This is something or maybe I do wish I could have talked about more in the book and, you know, and, and it's happened, all those terms, identity politics, intersectionality, these are all, you know, they, they very much uh, link these issues of, you know, quote unquote identity to capitalism to economics to class to the system to structure whatever you want to say uh it's 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 in their application sometimes by well-meaning white people and other times very deliberately by in bad faith mm. to divorce them again from material analysis so that they can then say oh you just always make things about race so 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 then we get we get attacked from both ends like isn't the right and the left and as you say it can then be used to just dismiss entire exactly exactly entire con yeah mm. you know so um yeah and i don't know you know what the answer is because it seems every time a new term comes the same thing happens mm. and so then again it's kind of we need to look back at how we use language and that's kind of where I'm starting to go with my work now, um, to look at how language is is deliberately misinterpreted and appropriated, and in order to um, project a specific kind of meaning or a specific worldview or a specific system, mm. um, because you know the problem is not with the term. So a lot of people will be like, oh, we have to stop saying identity politics. We have to stop saying this. And even you know, even words like people of color now, women of color. It's like, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not a person of color. I'm this, I'm that, and absolutely. But it was only ever meant as a collective term, a to denote solidarity, and sometimes just because saying non-white is a bit, you know. Um, so I use that the example of you know in my US version of the book I have to have a subtitle and so the subtitle we chose was um, as in me and my publisher was uh, how white feminism betrays women of color so without that term women of color I mean it would you know how white feminism betrays non-white women like it just yeah. doesn't have the same ring then you've got white in the title three times yeah, including yeah, the main yeah. title but I needed a term that did encompass um, all non-white women which is not to say that I treat them all exactly the same because no. the book absolutely doesn't but um, it does affect so you all non-white women. You need we need a term and but no term is ever going to be perfect it's never yeah. going to fit because race itself is constantly it's a weapon it's so mm. it's constantly changing and so it's it's expands in the sense of who can be white and who can be privileged and sometimes you you know arabs are a good example where they can and often do aspire to whiteness but it's very conditional and it's very individually placed yeah. you know it's 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 if you if you you know assimilate and if you behave exactly how we want you to and you never speak back then we can kind of treat you as yeah. white but you're you're not a complete person because yeah. you're never allowed to really contribute uh, critically to society. Well, that brings me to probably what should be my final question, yeah. which is about being an outsider. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think I referred earlier to, to you saying you have a natural stubbornness. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and, I, and I wonder if you think that a good artist or scholar or, or a good persuasive writer needs to be an outsider in some way. 
you know, is belonging risky? Yeah, I, I suddenly yeah, it is. Um, a because it's a lot harder to critique, to critique, um, because um, you know you may not want to offend people, you may not want to upset people, you may be afraid that you're going to lose your your position and your standing. Um, maybe you don't see it as clearly because you're you're so immersed in it and. I do, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing because being an outsider can be rough. Uh, and I, oh, I wish I knew to go ask this because, you know, Edward Said does have a great quote about what he calls, you know, the exile. It's, it's not just a, a physical exile, like you can be in exile anywhere where you're, you're in this constant state of being unsettled and as a result you're unsettling others. But he said it's necessary for, I mean, he used the term intellectual, but we can expand that to any any writer, any creative, in a sense, you know, you have to be ruffling the feathers. You have to be sort of, um, and yeah, and that does come a lot, I think, from being um, marginalised and, and pushed aside. And um, because, you know, in my case, it leads me to go, okay, well, why is this happening to me? What does this say about, you know, this can't really only be me. There is, you know, I, I kind of, I try to take my experiences and then say, is this something that, does this tell me something about the world at large and society at large? If it does, that's when I write about it. If it doesn't, then I'm like, okay, well then this is some sort of issue that I need to deal with or I need to look at in myself. Um, but yeah, it's sadly, it's one of those things. It's, yeah, it, it's, you can, I think, you know, you. It, may not be the case for everybody, but I do think, because um, it was um, my, I was, could, I knew I was starting to get ostracised from the media, and the more and more I was pushed out of these circles, and, um, and feminism, that really got me going, what's really happening here? Because mm. I haven't really done anything, and I work hard, and I know my work but I feel does like well it's... with readers. Why, why am I, you know, yeah. why am I being ignored or mocked or pushed aside or spoken over and or demonized i don't understand so it was a process of trying to understand all that i think yeah. that was such an interesting point about um to to be a ruffler of feathers mm. you always have to be uncomfortable yourself yeah. in some way which is yeah. tough everything i say i'm always you know, am i gonna say the one thing that's gonna just completely finish me but then i also, I kind of feel I'm in a position where I can't stop now yeah. because I do have an opportunity that many, probably most people don't, especially not people from my background. You know, my my mother was pulled out of school as a you know adolescent because my, her father died, and so mm. she basically had to help raise her five kids. She can't read or write. You know, no one in my family has gone to the level of education that I have, and, and certainly no one's published a book. And now, this opportunity is going to be published in America. Like I. I have to keep going, so... Well, you do but, have yeah. to keep going, and not just for you, but for the rest of us, I think. Yeah, so, oh, thank you. Thank you, Ruby, so much for talking to me. No, this thank you for having fantastic. me. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode. You can find details of our conversation today on the podcast page of my website, charlottewood.com.au. Thanks for listening. And I hope you can join me again next time on The Writer's Room.